Well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Andrew. Um, before I speak on the little passage in Romans 6, uh, how about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are and how good you are to us. I pray, Lord, that in these moments, uh, you'll help calm my nerves, uh, help me to be clear, and help us to see how good you are and to celebrate and rejoice in our salvation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, in our passage from Romans 6, we're going to be talking about baptism and its great meaning. Baptism is one of the two sacraments that our church performs. It's a mark of the Christian church to do baptisms. Jesus commands his disciples in the Great Commission to make disciples and to baptize them. But I need to be very clear right up front that baptism is a symbol of salvation, not a means of salvation. Like a wedding ring might point to the fact that someone is married, putting a ring on the correct finger does not make that person married. And people are married and they don't wear a wedding ring. My dad used to work on a factory floor and he didn't, have, uh, he didn't wear his ring. I worked with a guy um, at ANU, I shared an office with him and one weekend he came back uh, from the tip saying he was chucking in branches at um, Corkle Hill Brothers and a little branch got caught and took his ring off and he's like, it was gone. Didn't even try looking. He was still married even though he didn't have the ring. And likewise, it's possible to get baptised and not be saved and it's also possible to be saved without getting baptised. But baptism is a physical sign of salvation and we shouldn't just take it for granted. You may remember your own baptism or you might have been too young to remember. You may remember your confirmation. But Paul, in writing to these in Rome, he assumes they are baptised and is reminding them of the great truths it symbolises. For Paul, he assumes believers get baptised. It's something Christians do. It took me years to get baptised. I was 27 in this church with Guy Matthews when I finally got round to being baptised. I was one of the oldest in the group that year. I don't know if you know Will Houghton and Bryn Perkins. They were still in youth. I was in their cohort. Um, and it wasn't because I became a Christian when I turned 27. It was because I kind of missed out on doing the process in my teen years when I really held on to my faith. I grew up in a Baptist church, and when someone wanted to get baptised, it was a big deal. The whole service would change. That person would give a testimony. they pick all the songs, invite all their friends. And normally they did adults and not even teenagers in the one I was in. And then I switched to a Sydney Anglican church when I was 18 or 19 and kind of missed the Baptist boat. And I remember seeing my first Anglican baptism 
uh, in the service. They had a little square box and some water, it was like, like that. They poured the water on the person. And I turned to my friend and said almost too loudly, is that it? And then the row in front of me turned around to look, who said such a thing like that? I was amazed. Anyway, I moved on with my life. I attended this church for more than six years before getting baptised. And in those six years, I guess I was a little soft on the idea of baptism. And in this passage, Paul looks at the great importance of this sign, which I guess I didn't believe, because it is something more powerful than death. One commentator says, Paul wants the Christians in Rome to understand that their baptism is the most important event in their lives because they will receive a different identity and become a new creation. No longer will they walk in darkness and be ruled by sin and death. They will now have a new life in Jesus Christ, a life in which they will walk not in darkness, but in light, not in despair, but in faith, hope, and love. Paul, in this section of Romans, is talking about the new life of a believer. We have moved from being under Adam to being under Jesus. Those in Adam are under sin and death, but those under Jesus are under grace and life. Now that we are under grace and life, what does this mean for our stance before sin? If we are under grace, if the power of sin is no longer a threat to us, can we continue to sin? Paul seeks to answer this question and he brings up baptism. And he starts off talking about death. In the Anglican prayer book for a funeral service, there are three main passages, plus about 11 more options. This Romans passage, Romans 6, is the first main passage for a funeral. Death is a certainty of life. Death is all around us. It's in our movies, it's in our news, and normally any talk of death is not a positive experience. But our passage opens up with a message of hope about death. Romans 6, 3. Or do you not know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We who were baptised are baptised into Christ's death. In baptism, we are united or joined or linked with Christ's death in some way. One half of the baptism symbol in this passage, it says it is about death. Martin Luther described baptism quite visibly vividly. He said, it's nothing less than grace clutching you by the throat, a graceful throttling by which your sin is submerged in order that ye may remain under grace. This passage says, in our baptism, we are joined with Christ in his death and burial, and all those in Christ have died and have been buried. This may sound morbid, but it is good news. It's good news because the other half of the symbol of baptism is life. The next verse, verse 5. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We will certainly 
also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The good news is that Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again from the tomb on that first Easter morning. We live in the real world where Jesus walked from the grave. And so if we are united in death with Jesus, we are also united in his new life. Resurrection alone can answer the darkness of death. It is God's final word and the gospel's first word, life. In Jesus' death, he took the punishment for sin. Sin in this world was not God's plan. Cornelius Plantinga said, Sin is an anomaly, an intruder, a notorious gate crusher. Sin does not belong in God's world, but somehow it has gotten in. In fact, sin has dug in like a tick. It burrows deeper when we try to remove it. But in Christ, he was able to remove that great tick by taking the full consequences of sin and dying to it. He did the time for our crime. He paid the price. He dealt with the problem of sin on our behalf. And he did not stay dead. This means that sin has been done away with and anyone in Christ is set free from sin. America has crazy gun laws. They have lots of mass shootings. On August 26th this year, a racist gunman killed three people in Jacksonville, Florida. That person never faced court. Three days earlier in California, a man shot his wife and killed two other bystanders and injured six others. That man also was never prosecuted. These gunmen were never convicted of any crime because they were killed on the scene. The law only applies to people who are alive. You can't prosecute a person who is dead. And Jesus was prosecuted under sin and then rose again. All who are with Christ have now been set free from sin. The old ideas about death are no longer valid. Whatever society understands death to be, it no longer carries weight. Being bound to Christ in baptism allows the believer to be free from sin. In fact, they're dead to it. Since Christ has been raised from the dead, he can't die again. Death, the great final enemy, is no longer final, nor the great enemy. He is defeated. His sting has gone. Death now has no power or control over Jesus. Because Jesus has already experienced death and come out the other side, he has won the victory and brings us with him. In verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. This only happens once. Jesus doesn't need to die again and again. He has moved on with his life. Our God is alive and not dead. Our God has united us in salvation with his son and has given us his victory. In being united with Christ, this means we no longer die alone and we will know and we will not rise alone. We are linked with Christ. Baptism into death and life means baptism into death and life of Christ. 
Since we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, we too can now live for God, knowing that the destiny and the power of sin and death has been defeated. I found a website that lists a bunch of people who have read their own obituaries in the newspaper. This apparently happens more often than you would think. Mark Twain was one of the more famous ones who responded, the reports of my death was greatly an exaggeration. Ernest Hemingway was another famous person who read his own obituaries. He actually made a scrapbook and collected all the stories about it. On one such embarrassing occasion, a man whose obituary was printed in the paper, he rushed to the editor, the corpse, lodged his protest. How dare you print my obituary in the paper? I'm alive, see me, here I am. I sure am sorry, said the editor. And it's too late to do anything about it. The best thing I can do for you is to put you in the births column tomorrow morning and give you a fresh start. (laughs) I don't know how true that story actually is. But that is the reality of those who have died with Christ. They have died and are given a fresh start. In this new life or new birth, we are now free from the rule of sin. But we are not absolutely free. We get a new ruler over us. We move from being under one sovereign to another. I don't know about you, but my life really didn't change that much when King Charles III took the throne. In that change of sovereignty from queen to king, I barely noticed. There were some great pompous ceremonies on TV, and next year I assume our coins are gonna change with Charles's face on them, but my life is gonna carry on as usual. Paul in this passage talks about having another change of ruler over our lives, one from sin to God. We are to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Once we were ruled by sin, but now in Christ has dealt with that, sin no longer has any mastery over us. God and his victory over death does. We are changed people. So do we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No. That's not who we are anymore. Jesus has been killed because of sin. Jesus has been prosecuted under the law of sin and we are united with him. This means we don't keep on sinning for we are no longer slaves to sin. We are not ruled by it. We are to do something else. We are to live for God. This sovereign change affects how we live knowing we are not under the curse of death but instead under our resurrected king. We are different citizens. Like any cross-cultural citizen, when they change a country, there may be habits or idioms and mistakes made when brought across from their original culture. They may be out of place or even offensive. But these mistakes carried over from the first culture doesn't change their status in the new culture. They're still under the new country. And we need to see ourselves like that, as those who are now in a new country under God, not the old country under sin. And as we live under God in this new country, surrounded by other citizens, 
Our old habits and inclinations are to be put to death. Our allegiance is now to God, and so we follow him. And this is not to be done reluctantly because this is good. We're now under grace, a good, kind gift of eternal life that we did not deserve but received in Christ. This is shown in our baptism, which is like our new citizenship ceremony. This symbol shows the story of God's saving activity in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a powerful symbol because it points to something powerful. Baptism is the mark of our identity as Christians. We are brought into Jesus and his body, the church, where we can worship our new master, for under him we have been given a new life. So if you have been baptised, even if you can't remember it, know that it was a powerful sign showing your death and your new life under God. That is now who you are. As our 29th article says, those who have been baptised are grafted into the church. They receive the promises of forgiveness of sin and are adopted to be sons of God by the Holy Ghost. This is life-changing. After the service, you may want to ask someone here about their own baptism or confirmation. It's probably an encouraging story to hear. But if you haven't been baptised and you believe the Apostles' Creed, can I gently ask, why not? Are you like me when I was in my mid-twenties? I was a Christian attending and involved in this actual church but baptism was sort of something that I never really got round to doing. Do you turn to Christ? Do you repent of your sins? Do you reject selfish living and all that is false and unjust? Do you renounce Satan and all evil? If you say yes to them, then you should get baptised. Those are the four questions that you are asked in the service. And they're not even special Anglican questions. They date back to maybe the 4th century or even earlier. Next week, we're starting a course called Foundations. This goes for five weeks on a Sunday afternoon. In that course, it looks at the Apostles' Creed, Jesus' death and resurrection from Mark's Gospel, and gives you help in writing your own faith story. Already, we have 12 people going to this who are considering baptism or confirmation. Five are teens, the others are adults. In the last Synod report, they said in our diocese, we baptized 238 people. At St. Matt's last year alone, we baptised 21 and 14 were confirmed. And look, there isn't some sort of quota that we're trying to meet in appealing for people to get baptised. We don't get any bonuses. We don't have a KPI. We don't have a target that needs to be met. But the church is in the business of making disciples. And one aspect of that is that disciples of Christ get baptised. If you are a Christian, if you believe you have died with Christ and have been raised again in new life so that you can live for God, then get baptised. Why wouldn't you be visibly signed and sealed in the faith? It's something Christians do. Years ago, the ancient church would sometimes train candidates for two years before getting baptised. Cyril of Jerusalem, he had 23 lectures that he would give to candidates who were seeking baptism. Our one only goes for five weeks. 
you remember when old churches had um, graveyards next to them? In the past, the church would sometimes delay baptism till Easter Sunday. On the Saturday, they would have an Easter vigil and wait till just before sunrise. On that Easter morning, candidates for baptism would walk through the gravestones next to the church in the dark with nothing but a flickering candle for light before they entered the well-lit church. This tangible moment is also symbolic. The walking from the cemetery to the sanctuary, from darkness into light, from past memories of death to hope of new life. In baptism, we wrestle with death and life and in that order. To mix up the order is to miss the very great news that in Christ, death is not final. In Christ's death, we die to sin and are alive for God. This changes everything. Do you believe it? Rejoice in this good news. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of your Son who died and rose again. And in him, we too have died to him and to sin and will rise again in new life. We thank you for this great news. Amen.